Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for today. Thank you for just the opportunity to worship you. And um, I pray that we would all sense your Holy Spirit uh, present with us in our homes, in our families, in our communities. Uh, and right now, would you just speak through me, speak through this camera, speak through Facebook, social media, through the website, to the hearts of those listening in our minds. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're continuing with the story of Stephen, his martyrdom. He's the first martyr in the, the Christian church. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about biopics. So maybe you've heard of a, of a biopic, right? A biopic is a special kind of movie that's made about a person's life, right? I just recently watched the biopic Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, and it, it was a really enjoyable movie. All these beautiful cars, uh, you know, good acting, uh, beautifully shot, uh, intriguing, interesting plot. But it's a biopic, right? So it's about some people's lives. And it's about... Uh, Carol Shelby, who was a car, car designer, and Ken Miles, who was a race car driver. And they formed this kind of relationship where uh, they were, they were going to develop for Ford uh, this, car, this car called the Ford GT40, so racing car, a fast car. And they wanted to use that car to beat Ferrari in the 24 hours of Le Mans. So it's this 24-hour uh, race around a loop, and you switch drivers, obviously you... You know, you fill up with gas. It's a long race, a grueling race, and uh, they wanted to beat uh, Ferrari. And so I'm going to kind of come back to that illustration. But the, the point I want to make is that to know how to make a biopic about someone's life, you really have to make some interesting choices, right? First, you have to, to know about their life. You really have to know about the Carol Shelby, the Ken Miles, whoever you're making the biopic about. And then you have to choose, like, what parts of their life am I going to highlight? Because if I just choose, like, the happy moments where everyone's getting along, it's going to be a pretty boring film to make, right? It's going to be a pretty boring biopic. Uh, and so you have to highlight specific moments. And we see that in Ford versus Ferrari, kind of telling this narrative of these race car drivers and their relationship to, uh, and, and, and beating a Ferrari. But I want us to stop for a moment and kind of adjust the illustration to think about our own lives. Right? I want you to think about your own life and imagine for a moment if someone was going to make a biopic about your life. Uh, that would be intriguing, uh, but also frightening, right? You'd, you'd wonder, like, what moments are they going to highlight in my life? Are they going to highlight, like, the good moments or the embarrassing moments? Like, what highs and what lows are they going to look at, right? Because in every good biopic, there's kind of a narrative. There's a story told where... You know, there's a there's an engaging opening. There's there's conflict. There's uh, everything seems to go well. Then there's setback, right? And then they continue in the story. And kind of this there's variations on this structure. And uh, if you were to have someone make a biopic of your life, like which director would you choose? Because different directors make different choices, right? Like a a, a, a movie by Steven Spielberg is much different than a movie by Wes Anderson. Right? And so if, if you were to choose a director, would you choose Steven Spielberg to, to direct a movie of you, your, your biopic, your life story, or would you choose like Wes Anderson or uh, some other uh, weird director? Uh, and then like, who would you have play you in this biopic? Like clearly I would have either Denzel Washington or, or Michael Caine. Uh, that's my, my best Michael Caine impression. I hope the like the Facebook people are laughing. I don't know, uh, but clearly, like I have a lot in common with both those guys, right? One's uh, <laughs> British, and I don't I don't know if I could do a very good I don't know if he could do a good Jonathan Romick accent. Uh, 
Dr. Fauci actually joked that Brad Pitt should play him on SNL, and then Brad Pitt did play him. So uh, Denzel, I'm waiting. You can play me on SNL if you want. I think you're the perfect fit. But today's passage, as we look at Stephen's, uh, is, is like looking at Stephen's directorial debut. Right? Stephen is uh, telling a biopic of the nation of Israel of his people, of the Jewish people and their history. And he's going to look at some key moments in their story that, 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 tell, that, that tell a narrative. And this narrative is not flattering. Uh, if you were in the shoes of those people that are listening in the Sanhedrin, you would not be pleased with the biopic of your forefathers and your nation. Uh, but Stephen does it for a reason, because he is confronting sin. He is confronting sin head on, and, and if the Holy Spirit works in their hearts, the Holy Spirit can bring them to repentance. Right? So it's a hard biopic. It's not one that you, it's like a gritty, gritty biopic that you, you wouldn't enjoy watching of your life. But Stephen does it for a reason, because he wants to see God's grace shine through. Now he's been brought up on false charges, uh, false witnesses testify that this, ne this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, the high priest comes up and questions Stephen. He says, are these charges true? In other words, do you want to destroy our temple? And do you want to get rid of our law, the law of Moses? And Stephen is a bold director. He does not cower in fear. He doesn't shrink away. He steps up and says, let me paint you. Let me tell you a story. <laughs> let me tell you a story. And this story does not have a happy ending. And so I want us to follow that story today. We're going to follow that beginning, that middle, and that end. And we're going to see where it goes and what God can teach us today in our context, in our moment. Because if you just read through Acts 7, there's a lot here. It's pretty intimidating. There's a lot to digest. But I believe that the Holy Spirit can help us digest it and help us understand, like, okay, what was Stephen saying? What did the Sanhedrin, what were they supposed to hear? And then what can we hear today in our context? So first, I want to look at the beginning, Act 1, that God is good to his people and present with them. This is the kind of the main point that I think Stephen is unfolding, that God is good to his people and present with them. Uh, and so I'm just starting in verse 2. He directs the people's attention, his audience's attention, to Israel's forefather, starting with Abraham. I'm going to read the whole passage, so follow along, but not all at once. Uh, to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while we, he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Now God chose to be with Abraham by his grace in this moment. Right? God like came out of nowhere and said, Abraham, I choose you. I'm going to give you this new land, but you're going to be a blessing to all the nations, to all peoples. If you read in Genesis 12, 2 through 3, it says, like, through you, through your family, I'm going to bless the entire earth. God had a special plan, <clears throat> and so he was going to be with Abraham uh, and with his descendants and good to them. And so the story continues in verse 6. God spoke to him this way. Uh, actually, hold on, verse 4. So he left the land of the Chaldeans, that's the land of Babylon, and settled in Haran. Haran is modern-day Turkey. And after the death of his father, so Abraham's father dies, God sent him to this land where they are now living. Uh, he gave him no inheritance here, so that he's talking about Israel. 
He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, which is the promised land, even though at that time Abraham <coughs> had no child. Hey, Monica. I need some water. I'm going to go grab some water. So just hold tight. This is just online church. One sec. All right. Uh, Elijah is enjoying some Daniel Tiger right now. All right. So verse uh, five, they're, they're in Israel. God promised Abraham and his descendants after him that he would possess the land. That's talking about the promised land, like my Snoopy mug. Uh, even though at that time, Abraham had no child. So think about that. God said, I'm going to be with you and your descendants, but you don't actually have a child. Well, God has to show up. God has to do something. God has to do a miracle. God has to be good to his person, Abraham. And that's exactly uh, what he does with giving him a son, Isaac. Verse 6 says, God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. So he's talking about Israel. And they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. So I don't think there's anything particularly embarrassing here in this story yet. Uh, he's setting up the scene. Look at how God, God has been good to you. Look how God has been present with you. Look how God had a plan to work through you. Pretty soon here, though, he's going to say, but you are not working in line with God's plan. You're disobeying God. So God maintains the relationship. And then, like a good film director, uh, uh, Stephen begins to set up the next scene, right? He talks about, like, the next generation, Jacob and his sons. Verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Okay, this is starting to get embarrassing. Uh, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. At the culmination of this biopic, so at the end, uh, Stephen's going to critique those um, kind of the, his accusers, the, the synagogue of the free men, as well as the Sanhedrin, just really all the people that are present, uh, all the, the kind of the leaders in Jerusalem who rejected Jesus Christ. And they're all Jewish, right? They're all part of the nation of Israel. He's pointing back and saying, like, look how you guys uh, rejected God's chosen leader, uh, Joseph, right? Your, your, your forefathers rejected Joseph. And at the end, he's going to say, well, you rejected Jesus, just like your forefathers rejected Joseph. You're rejecting God's chosen leaders, and it's it's quite embarrassing. Uh, you know, God is being good with you, but you're but you're turning your back on Him. All right, verse eleven. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sold, told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought from the, the sons of 
Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So here's the point. Despite all their sins, despite rejecting Joseph, God is still good to them. God still rescues them. God still cares about his people. And I want to stop and think about our own lives for a moment. Let's take a moment and think and recall and think about the ways that, you know, God has been good to us. Where has God been good to you? Where is God sticking with you despite, you know, sometimes disobeying him or rejecting him? Have there been times in your own life where you rejected God, but God didn't reject you? Anytime we sin, it's a small rejection of God. And yet God, by his grace, he loves us and he continues with us. He bears with us. And it's that bearing with us that, that changes us, that, that makes us different, that gives us that, that faith. The start of Ford versus Ferrari, this British race car driver, Ken Miles, he is arrogant. He is uh, angry and arrogant and prideful, and he does everything his way. And that leads to a breaking point in the movie. And I realize I'm sort of uh, ruining the movie, but it's such a good movie, like you can watch it anyways and just enjoy it. You'll have a better grasp maybe of the plot line. I don't know. That's my excuse. Uh, but it leads to a breaking point, their relationship. Uh, leads to a breaking point where they actually get in a fist fight in this park. Uh, where they're talking and Ken Miles like punches uh, punches Carol Shelby in the face. And they're played by Christian Bale and Matt Damon, so you kind of see them get in a scuffle match, and it's fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they scuffle and they fight, and then they brush it off. And Carol Shelby sticks with Ken Miles because he sees what this race car driver can do, and he loves him. He cares about him as a person. And that changes him. And that's what God does for us. He, he sees what we are, and it changes us. By the end of the movie, uh, Ken Miles is, I mean, so I'm jumping ahead of the movie. We're only midway through the sermon, but I'm jumping to the end of the movie. Uh, Ken Miles is racing, and he's racing those 24 hours of Le Mans, and it becomes clear that he is going to win. He's going to win by a long shot. Uh, and the, the leadership at Ford says, well, you know, this is really an advertising opportunity for us. I want you to slow down. Uh, Ken Miles, and I want you to wait for your other uh, partners, your other two uh, Ford racers, because I guess they could race <laughs> multiple cars. And I want the three of you to cross the finish line at the same time, so we have a three-way tie. And that's really upsetting. That's really embarrassing, because Ken had been like proving himself in racing, and this had been a goal of his to win this, and he could win it by like miles and miles, and maybe like set uh, a new record. So at first, what he does, does is he actually speeds up, and he starts setting some lap records, because he still has time. This is a 24-hour race, a couple hours left. He begins to set, like, new lap records around the track. But then as he nears the end, he becomes convicted. And he slows down, and he plays with the team. And see, he's been changed. He's been changed by the presence, not of the Ford dealership that funded him, but of Carroll Shelby, of his friend, who stuck with him through thick and thin. He slows down and the three of them cross the finish line together and it actually ends up costing him the race. He doesn't get to win because of some weird rules. And yet he was at peace. He was okay because you know, he was changed. And that's what God does with us. He sticks with us and it changes us. Now we're gonna read through, the kind of continue in this story and we're going to see Israel, like, eventually they've, they've kind of abandoned God. They've hardened their hearts so much 
finding that they've actually crucified the righteous one, uh, God's Messiah, God's chosen one. And so we, we can play along with God. Like we can, we can work with God and soften our hearts to him and say, oh, you're going to stick with me? Okay, then I'm going to humble myself and stick with you. Or we can harden ourselves and, and, and do things our own way. And we don't want to do that. Like that's not how we want to respond to Jesus. And so I hope today's challenge will be like, okay, if God's sticking with me, I really want to stick with God. I want to know God. I want to be in relationship with him. And so Act 1 really is just a, kind of an intro to that relationship. God is good to his people and he's present with them. And we're going to see a little bit more how the people respond. So Act 2. Act 2, God's people reject him over and over and over and over again. Man, this is what we do. <laughs> and, you know, apart from the word of the Holy Spirit, we're going to do the same thing. Because we're the same people of God. Verse 17 it kind of looks at the, uh, this is like a director with a wide angle shot, right? He's like, let me give you the big picture of Israel. Verse 17, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. So the descendants of Abraham have been in captivity in Israel for 400 years. So what does God do? God raises up another leader, a man named Moses. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was, carried, uh, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. There's kind of an interesting point here. Uh, the Old Testament doesn't talk about Moses, Moses being educated by the Egyptians, but it says here that he was, and this is more like Jewish tradition, but uh, we're going to trust Stephen confirming it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the point that he is making is that like God raised up this leader that you weren't expecting. God raised up Stephen, or God raised up Moses uh, in, in Pharaoh's household. And he was educated in Pharaoh's ways. God was using an unexpected leader. And so we need to be mindful of those times when God brings us uh, unexpected leadership in our own life. Uh, but really, this ultimately points us to Jesus, the unexpected Savior. Right? You rejected Moses, the unexpected leader. And you rejected Jesus, the unexpected Savior. Uh, and this must have been uh, deep knives to their hearts as they were listening. And hopefully it'll be the kind of the right depth of uh, knife to our hearts is God convicts us of whatever he needs to convict us of in our own lives. But this leads me to kind of like my, my first sub point of act two, that God's people reject him by rejecting his chosen leader. God's people rejected him by rejecting his chosen leader. This is what the Sanhedrin, uh, the people of Israel have been doing. So I want to continue with the story. When Moses was 40 years old, <clears throat> verse 23, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are our brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the others pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. 
you can just picture like the Sanhedrin and uh, these Jewish religious leaders and the, his opponents just kind of be like, like, why are you talking about that? <laughs> like, uh, I, don't, I don't want you to uh, bring that up. That's not a, a nice part of our history where, you know, we rejected Moses and he ended up being this great deliverer, this great leader. And yet, uh, God, through Moses, extends his hand of mercy again, right? Uh, he puts out his hand and then... Uh, we reject it, like we slap it away, and then God puts out his hand again. He's just merciful to, to us. This is his character. This is He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And this is what he is for us as well. Uh, and, and so even as Stephen is highlighting these bad moments, he's also saying, well, God has been extending his, his, his merciful hand to you. So there's both a rebuke in here, but then like a gentle call uh, to repent and to receive God's grace anew through Jesus Christ. Let's continue. Verse 30. After 40 years had passed and an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Uh, uh, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Verse 31. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. So God is still with Moses and still with his people. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. God cares about oppression. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Uh, so Moses is going back to Egypt to lead his people out of bondage, even though they already kind of rejected him anyways. Verse 35, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed many wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Once again, Stephen is emphasizing Moses as the chosen leader of Israel, as the ruler and judge, and he's paralleling him to Jesus. And if you know the story of Moses, it actually says earlier in Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, that Moses did wonders and signs. Uh, you know who else performed wonders and signs? Uh, well, it, it talks about Moses here. I think it talks about Jesus performing wonders and signs in Acts 2. Either Moses or Jesus. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but Moses, Jesus, and Stephen all perform wonders and signs. And they have all been rejected. Uh, so if you're someone who thinks, oh, if God just did like a miracle in my life, I would believe, I wouldn't count on it. Uh, because they, these people see wonders and signs and they don't believe. So you need God to change our hearts. And God does change our hearts through his prophet. Moses promises that God is going to send a prophet like him. So this should tie into our Christian education hour. If you guys were listening Deuteronomy 18.15 talks about a promise, uh, a promised prophet that is going to come. Verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. So Stephen is saying, yeah, there was Moses, you guys rejected him, but Moses said there was going to be another prophet, a prophet like him. Oh, and you're going to reject him too. <laughs> Jesus is the prophet like Moses that you rejected. You were supposed to listen to him, but instead you closed your ears. 
And that's the exact same thing that they do at the end of Stephen's speech, right? They like close at their ears and they run at him and they grab him. Man, may that not be us. When God wants to speak to us, when God wants to rebuke us or encourage us or speak truth to us, would we open up? Would we not close our ears? Would we truly hear what God wants to say to us? Because uh, like, I don't want to be a star. I don't want to be a stubborn and hard-hearted people. I want to. I want to follow Jesus. I want to know Him. Number two is that God's people rejected Him by worshiping idols. So they rejected His chosen leader, and now they rejected Him by worshiping idols. This is getting really bad uh, in this biopic. It's like all the worst scenes. This is not good. Um, verse thirty-nine. But our ancestors refused to obey Him. Uh, instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. <clears throat> this is when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. So the golden calf, they made an idol. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Now, this is really interesting. I didn't really pick up on this. This is the first time I learned this, uh, focusing on this chapter. Hear what God says. So he's uh, quoting the prophets. He says, Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Raphon, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So what this is saying is that like the golden calf incident was a huge, uh, it was a huge blemish on Israel's history. And the, the Sanhedrin, the people of Stephen's day, had kind of believed, come, kind of come to believe in this, this myth that, well, the Israelites did good when they were in the wilderness, right? That they, they repented and they got to know God. And they, they were humble and contrite. You know what this passage is saying? It's saying that they were worshiping false gods even while they were being led in the wilderness. They were worshiping Molech and Raphan. They they were worshiping false idols. We like we 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 realized like later in the story of Israel that <clears throat> they worshipped false gods once they got into the land of exile, uh, the land of exile, but or, uh, into the land of Canaan. But you realize like they were worshiping false gods as Moses was leading them through the wilderness, <laughs> like. This is astounding, even as like they could see like the pillar of fire and cloud, uh, God's presence leading them by day and by night. They were still choosing to worship their idols. Now, putting this back into the context of Stephen's day, Stephen is saying, you guys have idolized and created a past that did not exist. You guys think that you were great when you weren't. You need to repent. And as Christians, like, uh, I, I say this carefully, but I, I, I say it just because I, I think it's true and it's just convicted in my heart. Sometimes I think we as Christians in our culture manufacture a past that was not there. Uh, I think there's this tendency in our hearts to idolize the past to say there was a golden age of Christianity in our culture. And if we can just get back to that golden age. And I think if we were really to be honest with this passage and allow God's word to change our hearts, and if we were to really honestly examine that past, we would see, well, there was greed back then. There was idolatry. There was really no golden age of Christianity. Sin just looked different. It was just as sinful and idolatrous back then as it is 
now today. Relationships were just as broken and, and racial tensions were just as heated as, as now they are as well. And so let's not idolize the past and, and honestly, let's, like, so that's kind of a, a kind of a, a culturally, a cultural critique, but then let's look at our own lives, right? like personally. I can't even, I can't even think about that right now. Like, let's, let's think about myself and like how in the past there are times when I felt like I am closer to the Lord, right? I'm, I'm reading my Bible all the time. I'm praying all the time. I'm serving. I'm like, you know, dotting my eyes and uh, crossing my T's and I'm, I'm just a good Christian. Therefore, I must be closer to God. Yeah, but there was still idolatry in our heart. We were still being disobedient. Maybe we didn't, weren't picking up on it, right? Maybe the Holy Spirit hadn't convicted us of our sins yet, but I think there are times when we idolize our own past. We say, that is when I was a good Christian. If I can just recapture the glory days of my faith. I think there's a, a little... Um, a little call to repentance here. Say, we should never put like our confidence and our trust in our past performance, culturally or personally, or as a church, like idolizing a certain period of, of our experience, uh, our existence as a new church. Say, now oh, if we can just get back to that. Why? Because sin is sin and sin is present. And sometimes we can't see it. So instead, we need to look forward. We need to focus on what God is calling us to. He's calling us to repentance and belief in Christ Jesus. Do not reject the leader that God has chosen for us. Do not reject the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our church, in our culture. Stephen gets real personal when he targets the temple. See, he begins to address what they hold most dear. Their temple, the place where they worship God, where they thought God's presence resided. And he's going to say, you know what? You have turned the temple into a place of idolatry. You know what that is? That's a slap in the face. That's a slap in the face. Verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations. God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So he's just kind of establishing that they built this temple. And uh, so they talk about the, the tabernacle, right? The, the place where the, the, the God's presence dwelled before the temple. It's a tent, and then they're going to build this permanent structure. And this is what he says, verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will, build, will you build for me, says the Lord? Or will, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? God's presence doesn't dwell in a building. So the charges they brought against him are actually kind of right. You, you want to destroy our temple. Stephen says, I don't care about your temple because God's temple came in the presence of Christ Jesus. See, Jesus housed the very presence of God and you rejected him. And now God's presence is actually in the church, the gathered people of God, and you're rejecting them too. <laughs> you're about to stone me. Idolatry is when we put a good thing in the place of God. So the temple wasn't a bad thing. 
but if it became, becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idolatrous thing. So God gives us good things. He gives you a family. He gives you money. He gives you a home. He gives you comfort, rest, peace. And if those things become idolatrous, oh, I love those things more than I want to deal with my sins. Or I love those things more than I want to deal with God. I, I love those things. I, you know, I'm comfortable here. That very quickly becomes idolatrous. So this is just a call to us, like, are there idols in our lives? Are there idols in our hearts? And here comes the kind of the, the slap in the face. See, Act 1, God is good with his people and present with them. Act 2, God's people reject him over and over and over again. Now, if there's a director, right, and this is not a Steven Spielberg movie. This is not a Wes Anderson movie. This is about to be a Martin Scorsese massacre. Because <laughs> Act 3 is, you resisted God. You resist God and kill the righteous one. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You know what God called the nation of Israel over and over again in the book of Exodus? A stiff-necked people. Man, you don't want to be a stiff-necked people when it comes to God. You want to go the way God wants you to go. See, Stephen's accusations are like a knife cutting to the heart. You are no better than your forefathers, those people that worship the golden calf, because you killed the righteous one, the Messiah. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. In Exodus, it says, like God says, like they're, they're supposed to have circumcised hearts. They're supposed to circumcise their own hearts, but you can't circumcise your own heart. That means to like kind of cut away some of that excess flesh, to cut away that sin. You can't cut away your own sin. Israel couldn't cut away their own sin. So they needed, they needed a Savior. They needed someone to come along and circumcise their hearts, and that's exactly what you and I need today. This is what I'm kind of heading towards the closing on. Like where in your life have you rejected God? Where in your life have you committed idolatry? You put things above God. Where in your life have you rejected the spiritual leadership God has placed in your life? If the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart and convicting you like you need to repent and I need to repent the places that God is just convicting me of. But most of all, where do we reject Jesus? We want, we want to follow him. We want to know Christ Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And we need him to come and change our hearts. Right? Because ultimately, I can't change myself. <laughs> I can't change from the inside out. God has to do that work in me. And so the question is, how will your biopic end? Like, will it, uh, I'm going to spoil the movie. Ken Miles dies at the end of Ford versus Ferrari. There's an accident and he dies. I guess you'd find that out if you like looked it up on Wikipedia. But it, 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 it's this beautiful story, but it ends in death. And it's sad and there's tragedy. There's beauty there, but there's, it's still death. I don't want our biopics to end in death. I want our biopics to end in eternal life through relationship with Christ Jesus. 
See, one day you and I are going to stand before God's throne. Great white throne judgment. And that's terrifying. And on that day, uh, to use a metaphor, the biopic of your life could play. Right? God could put on heaven's projector screen like your life. The good moments, the bad moments, all the embarrassing moments that you don't want anyone to see. But most of all, all the sin that you want to cover and the shame that you never want anyone to know about. And that's how God could judge your life. To say, all right, you consider yourself to be a good person. You can get into heaven if, if your biopic is as good as the biopic of my son. Right? That's... Like anyone could get into heaven through good works if their good works are equal to or greater than the perfect son of God who never sinned once, who died on a cross. See, it's impossible. It's impossible. I wouldn't want that biopic to play. I would, I would cower in shame for all eternity. And sadly, that's how many people are going to respond at that day because they rejected Jesus and their, 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 their judgment will be eternal shame. But God, in his grace, extends his hand. Even in this moment, and even in this rebuke to the Israelite, God is extending his hand to his people. And he's extending his hand to you. My son, my daughter, I love you. Repent. Come home. I, I can put on a different movie if you want. I will put on the biopic of my son, Christ Jesus. Instead of, instead of judging you and your life, let's judge you by the life of my son, Jesus. I enjoy watching the perfect life of my son on heaven's like, HD TV. It's, it's a perfect life. He's always, he always obeys. He's always obedient. He always trusts me. He knows me. He loves me. And I'm going to count his biopic as yours. That's how you're going to get into heaven. That's how you can be in relationship with me forever. I want that. <laughs> I want that. You know how we get that? By not responding the way that these Pharisees and Sadducees and the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and the, like these people responded. Instead, and they're just people in their sins, right? They're just people in their sins. By not responding in our sin, but just to say, Jesus, I repent of my sin. Would you forgive me and make me new? Would you cleanse me? Heavenly Father, would you play the biopic of Jesus instead of my own? Would you change from the inside out? Would you circumcise my heart? Because I cannot. I hope and I pray that this is how we hear today's passage. We'll be on Stephen for one more week. Uh, but this is a good place to kind of hear that, that gentle but loving rebuke to repent and believe in Jesus. And I think this is a call just not just for people that don't know Jesus yet, but for all of us, for myself included. So let's do that right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we repent. We repent of our sins. Lord, I know there are people are praying with me. We repent of our sins. We repent of our idolatry. We, we repent of our self-worship. We repent of our anger, of our animosity, of our pridefulness. We repent of our bitterness. We repent of our broken relationships. 
we repent of our idolization of the past, we repent of putting all of our stock and hope in the future, we just repent of everything that we do that is a part of your grace, that is, that is, that is separate from your grace, Lord. And we ask for your grace to just cover us, soften our hearts, circumcise our hearts, give us soft necks so that we follow Jesus and that we love him. Lord, we don't want to crucify the righteous one in our hearts. We simply want to know Jesus and love him and experience our, his grace. Lord, I love you so much, and I know your people love you. We love you. You make us a people that are soft to Jesus, soft to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and just want to do things his way. Lord, I thank you so much for this community. I thank you so much for this church family and all your people that love you so dearly. Lord, if there's anyone that's watching on this live stream that does not know you, would you give them soft hearts so that they can know and experience the grace and love of Jesus Christ? He paid the penalty for their sins on the cross, and that he rose again to conquer sin and death and to give them a brand new heart. This is enough, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.